tomorrow we leave for West Virginia for a day to spend a kind of a late Christmas with Christmas with my parents. So you may think I picked this passage because of that verse about the daughter-in-law rising up against the mother-in-law and the fight that ensues, but this is not directed at my wife. Um, I thought as we come to a new year, as we think through that, how do we step into a new year, begin it off well? And I thought, let, let's look how we begin our liturgy each day, this cadence of liturgy as we come before the presence of God. And when we walk into the new year with the same type of mindset, we walk through a specific liturgy here at, at Redeemer, and, and there's a specific cadence to it. And our hope is that it mirrors what the scripture would tell us about how we are to approach our God. We begin with that call to worship as we come in, a, a simple song, something that takes place. And our prayer is that in this call to worship, it's, it's us stepping in kind of this threshold moment, that we move from the secular to that which is sacred. That we step out of, of the mundane, out of the daily tasks of, of life, the, the six days of work, as it were. From the mundane, we, we step into what is majestic, what is glorious. And so that it is that reorienting of our heart and mind as we gather together. Not that we escape reality, as we say sometimes. It's not that we are just stepping out of the real world, escaping reality for an hour or so together. But it's that we are reorienting our minds to what is real, what is true, the kingdom that is lasting. So we have this call to worship. And then that is followed by confession and assurance of pardon. That as we come, we are individually and, and corporately coming and confessing with repentant hearts our unworthiness to walk into the presence of this God. That as we call our hearts to worship, call our hearts to recognize we're gathering now before the face of God, that in the midst of that, there is a sense of unworthiness. We have a realization of our sinfulness. There should be a measure of brokenness, of brokenheartedness as we come before our God. And then there is that assurance of pardon that while this is the case, we don't come beaten down. We don't come so overwhelmed that we can't approach our God because we are assured of our pardon. The same is true kind of in our daily life and routine. It's the same sort of cadence to liturgy. It's different than, than coming to church. There's something that is set apart, unique about that, but there's also a cadence to our life. You see it in the psalmist often as they begin their morning, and, and it talks about in the morning when they rise, they, they call their own hearts to worship. They preach, they plead to their own souls. You, 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 that language of bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You see that in the Psalms repeated. And it's a call to, to turn our hearts, from ev- our minds, from everything that can kind of just get lost and stuck in the temporal and the ordinary and to turn it to that which is eternal. Turn it to things that belong to a, a heavenly kingdom. And as we do that then, then we walk through that same cadence of recognizing the sinfulness of our own heart. Recognizing that just the sorrow, the darkness, the sadness, the sinfulness that we have in our hearts. 
And at that point, there's kind of a, a decision to be made. How do we react to our own sinfulness, to our own brokenness, our own brokenheartedness over our unfaithfulness to the Lord? Because the reality is, whether it's the psalmist or whether it's you, you call your heart to worship the Lord and then you stumble right out of the gate. You, you speak to your spouse, your children, or a co-worker in a way that you shouldn't speak. You, you don't honor the, the things that the Lord has given you like you should. They either become an idol or you're not a good steward of them. Uh, pride, selfishness, anger flashes. It, you see that in your life. And we often fall into one of two categories. We kind of let that defeat us and overwhelm us. And we sense that and we think, okay, I can't go to God. I can't run to God when there's this much ugliness and brokenness in my life. Or we kind of go the other way in the sense of, uh, let me just keep that separate. This part of my life is not that big of a deal. Uh, We just kind of try to sweep it under the rug, minimize the sin, the temptation, the patterns of life that, that creep in, that shun it. And we think, okay, I'll just keep this part of my life separate from it. Well, Scripture combines the two so often. It does it here in Micah, and we'll look at it in just a moment. But it's this idea of brokenheartedness and boldness before the face of God, our brokenness and boldness. Carl Truman wrote this essay a while back, um, several years ago. It says, What can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians sing? He's from Britain. That kind of sounds like a British title for some reason. Um, and it's, it focuses on kind of the songs of the church, but it really is broader than that as well. It becomes kind of a critique on the American church and their inability to uh, allow for lamentation and confession to exist within the church so often. That there's this expectation of just sort of, you know, Lighthearted, you come skipping into church, and it's just sort of all happy lightheartedness. Without making room for the reality of it's full of sinful, broken people coming to worship their God. How do you allow for broken people to come and to, to give them a, a language, a grammar, a way of approaching their God in boldness without just pretending that there isn't sin and brokenness? He says in that, Um, critique of the church he says that it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing he adds a diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. It's a theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken and sinful individuals. You see what he's saying. We've lost our capacity for lamentation and confession to be part of our worship. To come and to to realize and to acknowledge and to come with repentance and confessing that I am broken over my sin. There's a brokenheartedness. There is humility. And yet at the same time, there is boldness 
in confidence in approaching our God. Just make one simple observation from Micah today, really. Kind of a a meditation, a thought, as we begin our new year. Where it combines these two things that are always a combination of our heart. Sinfulness, brokenness that still exists. And at the same time, confidence and boldness to run to God in the midst of that brokenness. Micah and the Minor Prophets, hopefully by now you've been able to find it. We've given you a little bit of time as you search through there. Micah Prophets, they get left behind quite a bit. Just the name makes it seem like, you know, you have your big leaguers, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then the minor leaguers, and it's these minor prophets. We know that's not the case. And yet, there is a, there is, they are hard at times to totally figure out, understand historically what's going on um, in the minor prophets. They're not the simplest reads that we have in the scripture. Because you have the north, northern kingdom of Israel, you have the southern kingdom of Israel, you have multiple captivities. And then you have these prophets, which aren't really thematically organized or chronologically organized and and they speak into different kingdoms of different scenarios and so it's hard to understand at times exactly what is going on i i heard this illustration from a different pastor so i'm stealing it but um he he talked about winston churchill and a quote that winston churchill made he was at a state dinner and they come they had like a steak and the sides like a nice meal in the port and they, they bring it and they set it before him and he took one bite of each thing and sent it back, said he wanted to eat it. And they asked him why, and he said, because there's no theme. I don't know, like when Winston Churchill says it, it sounds kind of cool. If you tried it, <laughs> you'd sound like a pretentious jerk. Um, but it's that sort of idea. You read through the Minor Prophets, and it's, there's no theme. What, what is going on? It's just, boom, little this, little that, little this. Well, Micah can be kind of the same way. It's not a single prophecy that you're looking at in Micah. Micah ministered during the reign of three different kings, including Ahaz, Hezekiah. He, somewhere in the oh, 700, about 700 years before Christ in that, in that time frame. And so he talks about multiple captivities and different things happening. And it's not really chronological. It, it's, it's more like his, his greatest hits, like his best sermon, some of his early stuff. His later stuff, he has a Christmas hit in there. Um, And and so it it is like his best sermons compiled on top of one another. But there is the same flavor, the same theme that runs through all the minor prophets, all the major prophets, revelation, any prophetic word. And that is that Christ is coming, and in the day of the Lord, there is judgment and there is salvation. There is deliverance and there is warning and judgment. Pastor Adam alluded to this a few weeks ago when he talked about the gospel going forth. As, as we're in Galatians right now, we're away from it for a couple weeks, we'll return there. But in Galatians, that when the gospel goes forth, it's never just sort of a, a neutral, sterile situation. When it goes forward, it brings with it a word of deliverance or a word of judgment. That it brings rescue or it brings condemnation to the hearer. 
It is living, it is active. And it's the same word with this prophetic word. As it goes forward, it rotates through this idea of the Lord is coming. The Lord is going to show up on the scene. The day of the Lord is coming. And when he comes, there will be deliverance, and there will be rescue, and there will be rejoicing, and there also will be judgment, and there will be wailing, and there will be sorrow. We see that, we just celebrate in the advent of Christ. When he comes, it is joy, it is deliverance, a Savior has come, but it is also judgment, it is defeat. For those who do not place their trust in Christ. And so the same theme continues in Micah. And so you begin to see it, I I won't rehash it all, hopefully you heard, got a little of the the taste of it, the context of it from Micah 7 as, as Pastor Adam was reading But you see, there is, he points out at the the political leaders that the kings have failed to lead. He looks at the religious leaders that they have failed, at at the priests. He even looks at his colleagues, the prophets, that they have failed to be honest with the word of the Lord and his proclamation to the people. He gets individual and specific in the sins, that they've been dishonest in in taking people's land from them and and using it for their own, the violence that exists between one another, the lack of, of... of social uh, justice and the way they're mistreating the, the impoverished. And he, he speaks to these things and, and says that their religious life, their political life, it's all upheaval. And then as he speaks, he speaks, the Lord will come and there will be judgment, but there's also deliverance and there's also rescue. And it's all said in that context, Micah's name means who is like our God, who is like Yahweh. It begins in chapter 1, Micah, who is like our God. If you heard at the end of chapter 7, the book ends, who is like our God. It's a life lived here before the face of God. And Micah then, in chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 7 through 9, really, and just make a few observations But Micah then, in this context of heavy laden with sin, with brokenness, but how will he respond to all of this brokenness, all of this sin that they they see in the lives of, of this nation, the lives of the people, even in the lives of the godly? I'm going to read verse 7 through 9. We'll make a few comments. It says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Most commentators suggest that that Micah here, as he is speaking, he is speaking in this way that it it represents individuals. When he says I, he is speaking, yes, maybe of himself, but it's a a representation of the the individuals of, of the nation who will put their trust in Christ. So more than just like a, you know, a nondescript group of people, 
he is speaking to. Okay, here is how the godly, here is how the godly individual responded. He, he represents them in that. And it says that Micah is speaking to, kind of rhetorically to his enemy, but really speaking to his heart. As if he's almost re- reciting a creed or, or, or preaching to his own heart in this moment. How then do we move forward with our God? So with that in mind, him speaking, representing the, the individuals within the nation, speaking to his own heart. Listen to that text one more time. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. First, just notice his brokenness. Really, three comments here that, that speak to his brokenness. In verse 8, when I fall, he's fallen. Verse 8 again, when I sit in darkness. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. There's an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of his guilt, a brokenness, a brokenheartedness, acknowledgement of his situation. That when we come, moving into our situation, when we walk through life, when we come to church, when we're walking through that daily life of the Lord, we recognize that, that sin creeps in and easily besets. That lusts creep into the heart. That, that we abuse and misuse relationships. That there is times of unfaithfulness and wavering of our faith. When our heart is just cold towards the things of the Lord. The exp- we need to learn to confess, repent, and acknowledge that that is part of who we are. In our brokenness and in our weakness. And not just sweep it under the rug like it doesn't really matter. This sin is not a big deal. But see it as God sees it as ugly. It says the Lord's indignant because of their sin. Sometimes we get a view in our minds that God was indignant with sin in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, like he's just he it's just different. He doesn't care that much about it. Our sin still displeases the Lord. New Testament is full of of comments about the displeasure that our sin brings to the Lord, that it is offensive to him, that that he sees it, that he disciplines, that he corrects his children because of their sin. We are to take that seriously. But then you see with Micah, as he represents the people, as he preaches to his own heart, he recognizes it. He he doesn't try to hide it. He confesses it. But look then at his confidence. See how he responds. Verse 7 sets a context for us. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In other words, I'll cry to the Lord, and he will hear me. This brokenness, this sin, doesn't drive him to hide from the Lord. It isn't that he tries to, okay, let me fix myself and then I'll come to the Lord. 
If you were like that, I've been putting off getting a physical forever because I just, you know, I'm going to get in shape and get healthy, and then once I'm healthy, then I'll go get it. Or I was teasing Anna, my wife, I'm picking on her today. Um, my parents, a few weeks ago, they came in for a day to help us do a project at our house. And so we are needing to fix up the house, and it's kind of a messy job. And my wife took like two days to like deep clean the house before they showed up. I'm like, you know, she's cleaning out drawers, she's doing. So basically she's spending two whole days fixing up the house so my parents can come and help us fix up the house. You know, it's like we got to get this thing in order in order to get it in order. And sometimes we treat it like that, like God doesn't want to see me right now. Let me get my own stuff in order. And then when I get it in order, then I'll come to the Lord. No, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of his sinfulness, he looks to the Lord, he waits on the Lord, he cries to the Lord, and he is confident that the Lord hears him. Then he says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. That confidence again, those who stand that enjoy seeing your testimony fall, that, that, that just, you know, somehow they get one up on your falling. Maybe you can put a face to that. As Ephesians tells us, it's not against flesh and blood that we wrestle, but against evil and principalities. That is our true enemy. That don't let the enemy, don't let them rejoice that we, we've fallen, that somehow now the, the story's over for us. That's why he continues, when I've fallen, in verse 8, I shall rise to get back up. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He's a light through those ordinary means of grace as we come through him, through the community of faith, through, through the word that is preached to us, through the word that we, we read on our own, through the, the table, through baptism, through the sacraments, through the prayer, the ordinary means. The Lord is a light to us in the midst of darkness. Come to the Lord boldly. Go to the Word boldly. Pray boldly, even in the midst of your brokenness. Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. The the, the very God that He has offended, the very God whose heavy hand He sits under, He is the one He is waiting on to plead His cause. Does that move your mind to Romans 8? Who, who can condemn? Who can point a finger? No one but God. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who condemns. He is the one who is pleading our cause and executes judgment for me. He bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. To close, I just want to look backwards at one passage, and we'll look towards the end of chapter 7. Finished. You want to turn back to Micah chapter 5. So we pause one last time on themes around the Advent. But why can he be so confident? Why can he so boldly approach God when he is so unworthy? As we sang in that song, I don't know if you caught that lyric, my worth and my unworthiness. Where does that confidence rest? How can God plead his cause, execute judgment for him, and it not just be devastating? Chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, if you, if you remember Adam's sermon last week in the humility, the humble origins of Christ's birth, and he looked at, at Nazareth, Galilee, and Mary, and Joseph, and just the humble nature of that. Well, the same thing here, the author, Micah, is clearly pointing you to that as he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, speaking to this city, you're too little to be even among the clans of Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here it's emphasizing when it says they strike us on the cheek. Not only are they militarily been defeated, but the striking on the cheek is just, you're, you're helpless. You've been shamed. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Just that humiliation of taking a smack across the face. You just can't do anything about it. They're completely helpless. And in this time of just complete helplessness, we'll look to this little city that is, belongs to this helpless nation, and even in the helpless nation, it's not even an important city in that little helpless nation. And out of that, here's the contrast, will come someone who is great beyond measure, great to the ends of the earth. We recognize our inability, our unworthiness, the humbleness of our state, that indeed we do need a Savior who is great. He also emphasizes that God keeps his promises. As he says there, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, the the hearer would have heard that Bethlehem, David, David of Bethlehem and Ephratah, that promise made about from the line of David will come a king, and he will be a king who will rule in faith and justice. He will be a king who will rule forever. There's going to be a ruler. There's going to be a king come out of David. God is faithful to his promises. The confidence swells. In the midst of our weakness, God will do something great. God will be faithful to his promises And then the way it ends there, that he is our shepherd. He himself is our peace. He himself is the one who is our security. Verse 4, he shall stand for us. The Lord will work for us. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The majesty of the name of the Lord is God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. We come boldly because of Christ, because of what he has done, because he works for us, because he fights for us, because he is our security, he is our assurance, he is our peace. It's important that we learn to live with both of these realities both in the daily life of that you know, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable worship unto God, and in the joining together when we come for corporate worship. That we learn that they belong together in Scripture. 
brokenheartedness over sin and boldness before the face of God. It's not just a lightheartedness in our approach to God. It's not all sweeping sin under the rug and just coming. Or it's not hiding from God because of our sin. They exist together. If we're going to move forward with real joy, with honest change and growth, we need to learn to live with both of those existing together. Let's close with these last three verses from Micah 7. The work of Christ, the one who indeed is the confidence for our cleansing. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This promise, this language used in Exodus at the revelation of God to Moses, repeated by David in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. Now 700 years before Christ comes once again, How will this God let no iniquity go unpunished and yet trample underfoot iniquity and show us peace and mercy and grace? Because this shepherd that he's sending, this ruler, he's going to come and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. He comes in power and might, but he comes to die for our sins. We rejoice in his resurrection, and indeed, his name is great to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.